1 Corinthians chapter 7. As Paul writes this letter, he is responding to a letter from the Corinthians in which they have expressed a new understanding of various issues. Here in chapter 7, issues regarding marriage and sexuality. And he responds with the basic principle, stay as you are. And we've seen uh, that Paul has made that case for those who are married or those who were married, those who are widowers or widows. And last week we saw the supporting material that is based on ethnicity and slavery. Now these are not, uh, if you, these are things, these are callings. This is where you were when Christ called you, and this is where you should remain, unless, of course, you can change your status. Uh, today we come to the most difficult part of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, in the ABA scheme, you know, A, he deals with marriage and sexuality. B, is supporting material. And A, now he deals with uh, being single and sexuality. Uh, it has real difficulties. And uh, I think, sadly, it has been misused over the centuries by various factions in the church to promote, to promote a way of life that is contrary to what the scripture teaches. As we start, I want to present to you some assumptions that I have made as I've studied this to give them to you here at the beginning and then hopefully it will help us as we uh, look at this passage. First of all, Paul is writing about virgins. If you look in verse number 25, he says now about virgins. And just two things to mention. First of all, that now about is sort of a marker. These are things that the Corinthians wrote Paul about and now he is responding on this specific issue. And this seems to be the primary subject here in the second half uh, of the book of chapter seven. And he is responding to this specific issue. And that's what he will deal with. Of all the various meanings that are given to the word virgin, I think that Paul is he has a very specific group in mind. He's not speaking to single people in general, but here he is referring to members of the congregation, specifically women. But he also addresses the men who are engaged, they are betrothed to be married. And their question is to Paul, should they go through with their plans? Apparently there are people in the church who are saying, you know, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, so why would you get married? You're better off breaking your engagement and not getting married at all. And Paul responds to this issue. Paul's principle here is the same as it has been throughout. Stay as you are, but he does make concessions. His call to remain as they are presents real problems if you're engaged. Would you just stay engaged the rest of your life and, and never get married? Um, should you dissolve the engagement? This is what Paul addresses. I think the last thing that I want you to know about this is that Paul's argument here is unique. I think in all of the Pauline writings, but certainly here in 1 Corinthians, in that Paul expresses his opinion, he does not speak from apostolic authority. That is to say, there are parts, and in fact we will see them, we've already seen them where he says, this is what the Lord says, or this is what I say. But here in verse number 25, he says, I give a judgment. Verse 26, I think. Verse 32, I would like. Verse number 35, I am saying this for your own good. Um, verse 36, he should do as he wants. Verse 37, this man also does the right thing. Uh, only in verse number 27 does Paul make any definite remarks, any definite statements. They are imperatives. This is what you should do. 
Here he is giving his opinion. He is not saying this is the way it has to be. And that, that is really quite unique for an apostle to do. His argument is in three parts. Verses 25 through 28, reasons why those who are engaged should not get married. Then in verses 29 to 35, uh, the reasons why they should not, there are two reasons. And then lastly, at the end of the chapter, there are options. Get married, don't get married, both are acceptable to Paul. So, let's read first of all verses 25 to 28. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. Remember that Paul is in dialogue. This is his side of the phone conversation. And we're only in the room with him. We don't know what it is that they've said. Who is he talking about? Well, some people think that he's just talking about single people, single women in general. Uh, Paul, what should we do about our single daughters? Well, the problem with this is they're not asking Paul anything. They're telling Paul, this is what we think. This is what we think should be done. They're not consulting him at all. And so I don't think that Paul is addressing this at all. I do think he's referring to both men and women. And he goes back and forth. Um, They have committed themselves to each other in marriage. They are engaged. It is very possible, because of the strangeness we've already seen among the Corinthians, that they are actually living together as husband and wife without being married and without consummating their marriage. Because we saw at the beginning of the chapter, we have married people in Corinth who are living together as husband and wife, but not having sexual relations. By the way, in the 2nd through the 5th centuries in church history, this was practiced by Christians. There were a number of Christians who said, based on 1 Corinthians 7, you shouldn't be doing that. It is not good for a man to touch a woman. So we'll get married, but we will not consummate our relationship. Well, Paul has already told us that if you're married, you have marital duties. You have obligations within the context of marriage, and those are to be fulfilled. I think Paul is referring to those in the congregation who are engaged, and they're just wondering, should I get married? Should we go ahead and get married, or should we break off our engagement? Paul begins by saying, I have no command from the Lord. And this is different than what we've seen earlier, where he says... Not I, but the Lord, or I, not the Lord. Um, There, Paul was dealing with matters about which Jesus had not spoken. And Paul is saying, Jesus didn't speak about this, so I will. Or Jesus had spoken about divorce, so he does say this is what Jesus says. Um, Here, Paul is saying, Jesus didn't talk about this, and I have no authoritative word from God about this. I will simply give you my opinion about what should happen. And I think it's interesting, but it's also important that Paul does this. Paul is saying the Lord hasn't 
given specific instructions in this matter. Because the Corinthians, I think, believe that Jesus had. In Luke chapter 20, this is what Jesus says. The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die for they are like the angels. I think this is the Corinthians favorite passage from the Gospels because they believe they are already in that age. They believe in many ways that they are like the angels. They shouldn't get married and they should not allow other people to get married as well. And Paul says, listen, Jesus didn't say anything about this and and God has not given me a word on this. I will simply express my opinion. But he says that he gives his opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And bottom line, would you rather trust your own opinion or Paul's opinion? Now, Paul's not speaking authoritatively, but he's giving his opinion. Whose would you go with? I think the key to this entire passage is found in the next statement that Paul makes. I think, therefore, this is to be good because of the present crisis. I think that it is good for you to remain as you are because of the present crisis. What is the present crisis that Paul is talking about? Um, there are different opinions about this. Some people think the second coming, that Paul thought the second coming was right around the corner. It was going to happen right then. And So don't get married because Jesus is coming back. Uh, I don't think that's what he means at all. I think what he meant, we will never know. But the Corinthians knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew what he was talking about. Very much in the same way, in Second Corinthians, he will talk about his thorn in the flesh. He doesn't explain what it is. They knew what it was. So it's one of those things where you're listening to half of the conversation. The other side knows what this person is talking about, but, but you don't. I believe that what Paul is talking about is persecution. That is my opinion. Because when we read in the book of Acts, we see that Paul was persecuted when he went to Corinth, that the Lord Jesus appeared to him in a vision and told him not to worry, that he would be safe. Paul was taken uh, to court before the proconsul Gallio and was released. And when Paul left Corinth after a year and a half, as best we can tell because the passage is very brief, Paul did not get a haircut the whole time he was in Corinth. He let his hair grow as a vow to God. I will not cut my hair until I leave this place. And then when he left the place, he got to the eastern seaport of Corinth, Cancria, and there he cut his hair in fulfillment of the vow. So Corinth was a dangerous place during this time for Christians. And Paul is saying, listen, you know how bad it is right now in Corinth for Christians because of the persecution. Therefore, it's better not to make any major changes in your life. It is better not to marry. It is good for you to remain as you are. If you're married, stay married. Don't get a divorce. If you're unmarried, do not seek, do not look for a wife. He's told us the first one before, if you're married, stay married. The second one is quite new, but it's in line with what he's talking about in this particular passage. But you'll notice as he has done throughout the chapter, Paul makes a concession in verse number 28. But if you marry, you have not sinned. Marriage is not a sin, okay, for men or women. It is not a lower 
status in the Christian community. And we'll see that in a minute. People have misunderstood what Paul has said. But marriage does bring with it many troubles, particularly in light of the present crisis. If Paul were to write today, would he say the same thing? I don't think he would. If Paul were to write five years, ten years later, five years, ten years earlier, to a different community, would he say the same thing? I don't think so. He's speaking to the Corinthians at this point in history, and there's something going on. They know what it is. It is a crisis of, of great proportions. And Paul's saying, listen, things are so bad right now, you're better off not getting married. If you get married, that's fine. But, but there are problems because of the present crisis. So his argument is it is good for virgins to remain single because of the present distress, but it is no sin to marry. Those who do get married will experience difficulties, and he wanted to spare them this. Now we come to verses 29 through 35. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the, the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good and not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Here Paul gives two reasons why those who are unmarried should remain unmarried, those who are engaged, why they should not follow through with the weddings. I would just point out that he begins with the word brothers. Okay, that um, It's so strange to me that this particular chapter has caused so many problems. In this chapter, Paul is not combative at all. Uh, he is not throwing his authority in their face. He is trying to work with them within the context of their situation. And their situation is, we've got a crisis right now. Things are not good in society right now for us as Christians. And therefore, I don't want to add to your burden. I think it would be better that you dissolve your engagements and at least for the time being, not get married. But Paul faces a dilemma. There are people in the Corinthian church who say, no sex, sexual asceticism. Paul, on the other hand, is a celibate. That is, he remains alone, has no sexual contact, but for entirely different reasons. So now if he says something that they agree with, then they might say, well, see, Paul's just like us. Paul agrees with us. He does not agree with them, at least in terms of the reasons. He is celibate because it is a gift from God. And so Paul says, if you want to get married, you can get married. Those in the Corinthian church would never make that concession. Paul does. He gives them two reasons why they should not marry. First of all, the time is short. 
Now, usually people read this and they think, well, Paul means that the second coming is, is it's right here, that Jesus is coming back in our lifetime, so, so don't bother with getting married. Uh, this, I don't believe, is the case. I don't believe that Paul was talking about the second coming at all. Okay. When Paul says the time is short, he means the time is limited. The time is compressed. And as a result, Paul makes these statements, which, if you think about it, on the face of them, seem bizarre. Are you married? Then you should live as though you're not married. Are you mourning? As though you're not mourning. Are you happy? Live as though you're not happy. What are you talking about, Paul? What Paul is doing is calling for a radical new perspective on life. That is to say, they need to have a different sense of time. In the Bible, time is used usually in one of two ways. One is the amount of time, the quantity of time, how much time is there. The other is in terms of a specific event. Is it time yet for this? Let me ask you a question. Is there anything that you can think of that can compress time, that at least can make time seem to go faster uh, than normal? I would suggest that there are two things. The first is when there's a beginning point and an ending point, the time is limited. And so, you know, it's not simply going to go on and on and on and on. And, and then time begins to drag because you have no sense of when it is going to cut off. The other is to know that something will, in fact, happen in the future, that tomorrow at noon, such and such is going to happen. Suddenly your perspective is different as opposed to someone saying, yeah, sometime this week I'll, I'll, I'll come over and see you. Versus 12 o'clock tomorrow, suddenly I'm not sort of out of focus. There's a specific event, and that is what I'm looking forward to. Now think a minute. When there is a limit to time, isn't there a sense of time being compressed? It's like a kid on a trip. Are we there yet? Are we almost there? Are we almost there? Because I think children oftentimes fail, their sense of time is different, to understand that, okay, this trip had a beginning and it will have an end. For them, it seems open-ended and that, you know, we're going to be in this car the rest of our lives. It's like, no, there will be an end to this particular trip. Uh, by the way, to say we'll get there when we get there is no answer, okay, because that, that leaves it open-ended. To say we will be there in an hour or two hours or whatever it is, they may still be antsy, but there's still a sense that, oh, okay, there, there actually will be an end to this particular trip. Now, some might argue, Damon, actually, for me, the, the reverse is true. If I know when something is going to happen, time seems to drag. It's like kids, like, I huh, can hardly wait till I'm 13 years old, you know, or can hardly wait till I'm 18 and leave home. And, you know, time just seems to drag. Um, perhaps. But I do say that when you have a point in the future, your perspective of reality changes. And that's what Paul is calling for. I've noticed as I've gotten older, I'm over 50 now, that things seem to go faster and those of you who are middle-aged and beyond, you may have noticed that. And I think it is because we are far more aware now that 
the end of the journey is coming up. When you're a teenager, when you're 20, when you're 30, the end of the journey is not something you're thinking about. It's sort of open-ended, and so time doesn't seem to go as fast. You get older, and you start to get the aches and the pains, and then you, you just become more aware. And suddenly you realize, one day you wake up and you realize, one day I'm going to die. And it's scary, but the one thing that happens is it changes your perspective of time. You realize, I'm not going to live forever. In the same way, Paul wants the Corinthians to have an appreciation that there was a beginning, that is the coming of Christ, and there will be an ending, and that is the second coming of Christ. And that compresses time. Human history is not going to just go on and on and on. There will be a point at which time ends. And therefore, this age is not the final reality. And that's why Paul can say, you know, if you're married, live as though you're not married. Now, okay, now what does that mean? Does that mean don't go home, you know, don't, don't support your spouse? No, he means don't let it define you. Are you unhappy? Are you mourning? That's fine. Don't let it define you. Are you happy? Don't let it define you. This age is passing away. And therefore, marriage, which is fine, should not be the defining thing in your life because it belongs to this age and this age is passing away. That's why the coming of Christ is so important. Not simply because he came and he taught. He's the revelation of God. Uh, he brought salvation. I mean, all those things, yes. But the coming of Christ started the clock ticking. And the apostles, as they see it, the beginning, when Christ comes, that is the beginning of the last days. Now, this is something I think people really don't understand. Let me read to you just several passages. From Hebrews, the book of Hebrews opens, In the past, in the olden days, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Peter writes about Jesus. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. John writes in 1 John, Dear children, this is the last hour. Okay, Not day, not time, the last hour. And as you have heard, there are that many, Christ have, many antichrists have come, this is how we know it is the last hour. Now, either the, the apostles were mistaken, and there are many people who are like, what fools they were. They thought the second coming was going to happen right then. Or they understood that the coming of Christ begins this, this event, this, this period of time, and when Christ returns, that will end it. And therefore, time is compressed. It has a beginning and it has an end. And Paul's answer to this new perspective is not detachment. I have nothing to do with this world. I just I will remain detached. I will escape this world. Marriage, no, it's not for me. Happiness, not for me. Mourning, not going to do that. Not at all. Paul is not saying that we should be detached. These things should not determine our lives. So if you want to marry, by all means, get married. Paul says, because of the present crisis, I think you should hold off. But if you want to, you've not done anything wrong. 
The second reason why people shouldn't, those who are engaged, should probably dissolve their engagement, postpone their wedding. Paul says, I would like you to be free from concern. And this is, this is a passage I find fascinating for what people fail to see in what Paul says here. And I don't know if you caught it as I read it. What does Paul say? I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. Now, do you notice something there? Paul says, I don't want you to be concerned. And for some reason, we think he's only concerned about the married man who's concerned about his wife. What about the unmarried man who's concerned about the things of the Lord? Paul says, I don't want you to be worried. A single man worries about the Lord's thing. I don't want you to worry. A married man is worried about his wife. I don't want you to worry. Paul's thing is, these things should not define who you are as a person. A single person serving God versus a married person who needs to take care of his wife. Or uh, a single woman who is serving God or a married woman who is taking care of her husband. Paul, these things should not define you. They should not concern you. They should not make you anxious. Paul says, I don't want you to live a life of anxiety or worry. I, I think at some certain point in my life, I think I stopped worrying because I realized that my mom was doing all the worrying for me. And so I didn't need to do that anymore. She takes care of that. Paul's don't worry. The things of God, don't worry about them. Your wife, don't worry about that. For some reason, people really seem to miss what Paul is saying here. He doesn't want these things to so possess our minds that the new perspective is changed, this radical new perspective, and we become like everybody else, tied to this world, as though this were the final reality. Paul says, listen, I want you to live lives that are not bound up in worry. And if you look at uh, verse number 35, Paul says, I am saying this for your own good. Not to restrict you, and I'm not putting a noose around your neck, that you may live the right way. Let's face it, I think we have no conception of what it is to live in a society that would persecute us for our faith. I just don't think that we do. And, and how do you face persecution as a married person, knowing that your spouse may suffer persecution? I think, I think that I would stand for my faith by God's grace to my death. But if someone threatened my wife, it would be much harder. Paul says, listen, I'm trying to spare you this. Because of the present crisis, I don't want you to suffer needlessly. I want you to live a right life. I want you to do the right thing. Don't be divided in your thinking. Don't think, oh, should I get married? I'll get married. Should I get married? Yeah. Make up your mind and do what you want to do, and that will be the right thing.
And this is what we find Paul saying here in verses 36 through 38. By the way, before I read it, if you have an NIV, you may notice that they give an entirely different translation at the bottom of the page. Uh, without question, I think in all of Paul's writings, these three verses are the most difficult to translate from Greek into English. Okay, having said that, let's read them and, and see what Paul is saying. If anyone thinks he is acting improperly toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. Okay. What is Paul saying here? Remember, Paul says, I want you to live in the right way. And what is the right way to live? Well, what I find fascinating in this passage is how Paul wants the man to make up his mind. Did you notice that? That he has settled that matter in his own mind. He is under no compulsion. He has control over his own will. He has made up his own mind. In other words, whoever you are, make up your own mind. Don't let people in the congregation say, no, 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 shouldn't get married. Don't let your family put pressure on you. Don't let her family put pressure on you. You need to make up your mind to do the right thing. And Paul's saying, basically, it's up to you. And if you want to marry, that's fine. Paul says, in my opinion, because of the present crisis, if you don't marry her, that's a better thing for right now. But if you think, man, you know, we've been engaged, engaged now for how many years? Um, she's not getting any younger and I'm not getting any younger. And as long as she's engaged to me, she can't be engaged to someone else. Um, maybe I need to dissolve this relationship and give her freedom either to marry or to not marry to serve the Lord as perhaps I wish to do. Or we should get married. And Paul says, you know, whatever you want to do, that's up to you, and neither one is wrong. Neither one is wrong. You need to make up your own mind and do what is right. But because of the present crisis, I think if you don't get married, you're better off. And again, I don't think this is what Paul would say to everyone at any time in his human history. He's saying it to the Corinthians right now because of the present crisis. Now, the last part, Paul addresses the widows. Before I read this, just one thing about the footnote with the NIV. The NIV, as in some translations, puts the father in there, that the father is the one making the decision. And it, has, it doesn't fit in with the context whatsoever. Uh, Paul's not talking about the parents. He's talking about this man and this woman who are engaged. They need to make up their minds. Okay, but just so you know that. Verses, uh, let's see, 39 and 40. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. What is Paul's word, his final word about message, uh, about marriage? First of all, marriage is binding. 
You get married, you're married for life. Secondly, death dissolves marriage. You're no longer married once one person dies. Thirdly, you are free to remarry with one caveat, if you wish. There's one condition. You have to marry a believer. And as I said when we began here in chapter 7, Paul doesn't say this throughout the chapter. He says it here at the end, but I think it applies throughout the chapter. A Christian is to marry a fellow believer. Paul's advice, and again, I think because of the present crisis, you're better off not remarrying. Things are just too hairy right now, too scary. You're better off just remaining a widow. And Paul says, you know, this is my judgment, this is my opinion, and I think I have the Spirit of God. And we would agree. But I would not agree that what Paul says here binds all Christians of all ages. This is a dialogue he's speaking to the Corinthians, and he gives them his opinion. Let's wrap this up. How does this, how does this apply to us at all? If Paul is writing to the Corinthians at that point in time, does this actually mean anything to us at all? Uh, well, again, I would just remind you of the, the conditions under which he wrote this, and, and to keep that in mind. It does apply to us in this regard, however. Paul is calling for a radical new perspective. Not something he just thought up. I think something he had preached to them when he was there, but they had forgotten about because of their new theology. See, the Corinthians think the resurrection's already happened. That's why they think they're like the angels. They don't get married. They don't have sex because they're like the angels. And Paul will tell them in chapter 15, listen, no, no, no. Corinthians, you're saying the resurrection is not going to happen? That's ridiculous. Christ comes into the world. Christ will return to the world. And we live in this time. Therefore, we are to have a different perspective on time, a different perspective on our lives than the average person. And we need to realize that we don't belong to this age. This is not the final reality. This is not the defining reality for us. This is a training reality, a learning reality to prepare us for that which is to come. And I think we need to think long and hard on that. Today, as we have communion, I I would remind you that communion is one of those events between the markers. Remember, and I'll read it in in a few minutes from chapter 11, that Paul says that as often as we do this, we, we proclaim the Lord's death, past, past event marker, till he comes, future event marker. They're there. We're living in between. Now, when he's going to come, we don't know. But we know that he will. So history isn't open-ended. It isn't just going to go on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. There will come a point at which human history will end. And in the meantime, we have a new perspective. We live differently. And one of the things that reminds us of this is sharing in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Father, it's most difficult of passages. We thank you for Paul's wisdom. May we learn from it. We confess that far too often our perspective is like that of those around us. 
that we define ourselves in terms of the things of this life. And we forget that the time is in fact limited. That one day Jesus will return. He may return in our lifetime or as has been the case for so many before us after their deaths, after our deaths. But he will return. And we will leave this age and be in that age for eternity. May your spirit work in our hearts as we think through what Paul has written here to the Corinthians. Now we remember the death of your son, the coming of your son, and how his death gives us life. And we pray this in Jesus' name.